0: So in our second session, we're going to talk about what it means for God to forgive us, because that really is the foundation out of which all other forgiveness will come. Um, And I think it's helpful to think through the story of the prodigal son, which was mentioned uh, towards the end of the the last first session here. I mean, we all know the story very well. One thing to point out about the story is it comes at the conclusion of a trilogy of parables, the first parable in the trilogy is about the one shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep out of the hundred, right? One out of a hundred. You have the woman who has the 10 coins and one of them goes missing. And so she turns her house upside down until she finds that last coin. And then the trilogy culminates with the prodigal son, one of two, right? Who demands his inheritance from his father, which would have basically been like saying, I want you dead, right? I want your money. The father gives him that. The son goes off and spends it unwisely, he doesn't invest it or anything. He wastes it. Um, Andrew and I were just talking about football players who did that, common for football players, <laughs> right? Uh, so that he goes and wastes all his money and he's got nothing and he's, he hits rock bottom when he's working in a, in a pig trough, in a pigsty, eating their food, right? And, um, and so when he's, when he's at that, At that bottom, he says, uh, "He says maybe if I go back to my father's house, he'll treat me like a servant." And so he gets up and he goes. And of course, the father sees him from a long way off and runs out to meet him, which would have been very undignified for an elder head of household to do in that time. And he falls on his neck. You know, I mean, we almost get this embrace. That's it's almost like he tackles him. You know, out of joy, he's so happy to see him and brings him back to the household and gives him fine clothes and throws him a fine feast. And uh, everything goes well, and it would be great if the story just ended there, but then we've got the older brother who stands outside and um, and can't get over this party for his younger brother, who was so irresponsible with his father's money and who insulted the family and dra- dragged their name through the mud literally um, and so uh, So the father tries to bid him inside, well, you have everything I have is yours." you 've been here with me the whole time you know I, I, it's not this isn't it 's not a trade off what 's good for you is good for him, and vice versa you know, is kind of the the attitude the father has and, and we never know how the older brother responds i think that's that 's one of the genius of that parable is it kind of leaves your leaves it up to your imagination um, how it ends and of course, we can read that story in a sort of allegorical way you know we 're the prodigal son right, um, and we departed we left. Um, god and uh, and God, our Father, uh, allows us back in, He runs to meet us and and brings us into the the party and and gives us provision um, and Of course, we can read it allegorically as a warning, right I mean we have our certain prejudices and things as people, I mean just kind of naturally, and so it can become a a problem when we believe that there are certain people who don 't deserve or don 't shouldn 't be included in. The sort of great feast of the church, and so we are warned not to be an older brother, right? Um, so that's one level. We're going to talk about another way to approach that story uh, later, um, but that does sort of frame our, our discussion about divine forgiveness. Um, when we talk about forgiveness as Christians, we're often talking about God's forgiveness of us and then our forgiveness of one another. And like I said, they are related, um, and in a sense, Uh, God's forgiveness of us can work through our forgiveness of others, Um, but there are still important distinctions that need to be made because what makes them different is the fact that we humans are creatures and God as our creator stands distinct from creation. So it's important that we understand the difference between what it means when we say that God forgives us and what we mean when we say that humans forgive us. Um, once we understand the difference between human and divine forgiveness, then I think we can understand a little better how God offers us forgiveness through his cross and how he appropriates that forgiveness to us through the sacraments. Now, let me ask you a question, um, and this is, this actually goes back to an old Platonic dialogue written by the philosopher Plato uh, called the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, is something good because God says it's good or... Does goodness exist and God kind of points us towards goodness? This is the question that that Plato asks in the dialogue. Is something good because God said it? Or does God kind of point us to what is good? Um, The problem, the reason this is called a dilemma is, if God just can say something's good and that makes it good, you run into the issue of arbitrariness, right? Right? So it's good to be faithful to your wife and to not lie, to tell the truth. It's good to do those things. But if God is just arbitrarily saying those things are good, then you could conceive of a world in which God says lying is actually a great virtue um, and committing adultery is a good thing. You know. Well, no, that's not how it works, right? That can't possibly be how it works uh, or else it's very strange. Um, further, we can't really say God... Um, points us to something that's good as if goodness exists outside of God or above God. You know, God is aspiring to goodness just like we're aspiring to goodness. That can't be the case either because then it would mean something is higher than God. And if something's higher than God, then God really isn't God, is he? So we run into this problem of, well, where does goodness come from? And of course, the pagans have a tougher time answering it than we do as Christians. Um, What Spoiler alert, the the short answer is that goodness comes from God's nature. Good is good because of who God is. So we'll flesh out the implications of that for a moment, but it's important to draw a distinction, right? God is infinite. We are finite, finite creatures. All of us are boxed in by time and space, right? None of us can experience all that there is to experience or know all that there is to know. And many, basically, in this sense, we're the sum total of our experiences, right? Um, We're exposed to certain things at certain times, and it molds us and shapes us into who we are now. And even now, we're experiencing certain things that are molding and shaping us. And so we're in a kind of constant state of becoming, of changing, Based on our experiences, and this is actually what Thomas Aquinas talks about in, in his Summa um, about the senses, why the senses are so important, because our senses are the gateway. They give us data, right, from the physical world, and then our brain sort of organizes that data um, so that we can become uh, more virtuous, or if you don't do it right, you actually end up becoming less virtuous, right? Um, so that, that's kind of the end goal uh, with, with our bodies and how our bodies and our minds are related, Um, what this means as finite creatures shaped by experiences is that we often have attributes that need to trade off with one another, right? So a good example of this is the relationship between justice and mercy. Many people who have been grievously wronged long for justice, right? And if justice was not given, if mercy was shown rather than justice then they would feel deprived, right? Um, and there are times where, uh, where it would actually be kind of immoral to show mercy, right? It, would be, it wouldn't be moral for the state to refuse to punish a company that was intentionally withholding wages earned by their employees, right? If we saw that happen, we would say, yeah, that company needs to be held responsible. They need to pay their workers, right? That's moral, it's just, if the state said, well, that was wrong, but we'll show mercy. None of us would be very pleased with that, I would think, unless you're the owner of the company. So there are, there are times where justice is more fitting than mercy. There are times where mercy is more fitting than justice, right? Um, you know, if I loan you 100 bucks and we agree on a 2% interest rate per month and the first month comes and you say, "Ah, oh, I can't pay you. And so I say, okay, well, I'm going to charge you interest. Now you owe me $102, right? And then uh, the next month, uh, time to pay up. Oh, I don't have the money. Okay, well, 2, 2% more interest. And and that continues to compound until you owe me a good deal of money. Well, you know, it may be better for me to say, well, I'm just going to forgive that debt. You know, I'm not going to hold that against you. That's fine, you know, and that, that would be okay. I would be within my prerogative to do that. But there are instances instances in which Um, in in which we either pursue justice or we pursue mercy. Um, Sometimes we might try to synthesize the two, right? Maybe I put you on a payment plan that's more doable than paying me the lump sum of what you owe me or something. But if I'm mainly interested in justice, it will negate or at least diminish the amount of mercy I'll show you. And the opposite may be true in other times. If I'm interested in mercy, it may dampen the kind of justice that I'm seeking in that instance. And both of these things are good, by the way. I'm not saying one is always more right than the other. Justice is necessary. So is mercy in the right situation. Um, and there's always a question of which attribute is more fitting in a given context. You know, how do, how do we apply uh, virtues in a, in a given moment? Um, that requires uh, intelligence. It requires prudence, right? Intelligence is knowing the right end in a situation, and prudence is knowing the right way to attain that end. Um, so, you know, these are, uh, wisdom is key here, right? We have to be flexible. There's not always a chart we can uh, consult in a given situation of which, what we should pursue. But this is where we run into the problem because this human virtue where some t- or human experience where some virtues are mutually exclusive with others, at least in a given situation, um, is sometimes something we project onto God, right? How many of you have ever heard someone say, well, I like the God of the New Testament, much more than the God of the Old Testament. Because the God of the New Testament shows grace and mercy, but the God in the Old Testament is mean and vindictive and punishes people. You know? um, so, so again, we kind of project that same experience that we have of justice and mercy onto God. And that becomes a problem. Because Isaiah 55, nine tells us, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God's ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is the wellspring of anything that is good, especially the virtues. So whatever virtue we're talking about, it finds its origin and fulfillment in God. So when we describe a person, we use virtues as adjectives, right? Uh, We might say, Marcy is patient. Or we might say, John is prudent. Adjectives. When we're talking about God, we can use adjectives to describe him. God is patient, right? That's a biblical phrase. God is patient. Um, But it's kind of incomplete, right? God's not just loving. He is loving, but he's not just loving. He is love. He is the thing in which the virtue participates. God is love. God is mercy. God is patience, right? He is those things. He is justice. So for creatures, because we're finite, we have trade-offs and we have imperfections, right? None of us are fully virtuous, usually. Um, If you are, congratulations. Um, I'm not there yet. But for God, these virtues are all perfect. And so it should be remembered as well that there's no competition or trade-off in God then. In other words, his love and his justice do not find themselves opposed like they, do, like they might be in human experience. So the Euthyphro Dilemma is answered in the fact that goodness is based on who God is. It's not an arbitrary declaration. It's not some standard outside of God that God is subordinate to. When God extends mercy... When God extends his forgiveness to us, it's not a trade-off. His mercy is just, and his justice is merciful. So we can't think in terms of humans being, uh, we we can't project our human experience onto God. That's the big key. That's called um, anthropomorphism. And it becomes idolatrous, right, because we put God in a little human-shaped box, Potentially. Yeah. So actually, so that's a good question. So God's mercy may not always be what we see as merciful. There's a sense in which I think that's true um, in that uh, we just did our Friday Bible study on Joshua through Kings, right? And uh, that's a very depressing part of scripture because Israel continues to fail over and over and over again. And just when you think it can't possibly get worse, they do something worse, right? Um, oh, I can't, they, they just built golden calves. It can't possibly get worse. Oh no, now they're sacrificing children. It's definitely gotten worse, you know? Um, and so we we end with this 50 year reign of this this horrible, evil, wicked king um, who puts idols up in the, in the temple, practices child sacrifice, right? And it's just, it gets so bad. And what happens at the end of, of Kings? God sends the people into exile. Now, if you're an Israelite living in that time and the Babylonians come and invade your, Country and they destroy your temple and they mistreat your wife and your children and they drag you off to another country and you have to live there as sort of servants. You know, it, it, that's how could that be good? How could that be merciful? But it is, it is merciful. Uh, God's punishment, I would argue, is not uh, retributive but restorative. Israel needed that exile because they had gotten so off base. That it was actually a great act of mercy for God to say, "No, I'm going to take you out and put you here for 40 years until you learn your lesson." I mean, it's sort of a larger kind of national version of a timeout, right? There are times where you have to do that to your kids, and and it's the right thing to do. It's good for them to do that. Um, so, so yes, sometimes God's mercy may not look like what we think it it does. Um, but but at the end, I think looking back, it's easier to see it sometimes, you know. Actually, that was God being merciful to me that he did that. Um, and so it might be hard in the moment. It might not feel like it, um, but it is. Um, the Hebrews talks about uh, God uh, chastiseth those whom he loveth, you know, and I think that's, that's very true. Chastisement, I'm sure when we punish Jude, it doesn't always feel like that's the most, you know, he might not see how it's all loving that we, you know, Don't let him play hockey for a week or something like that. Um, But it is, you know. So yes, absolutely. Um, When we talk about God, it, it becomes tricky because we don't want to redefine words. So we don't want to say God is merciful and then say, but he actually acts in ways that aren't merciful. But we also don't want to pigeonhole him into purely human definitions of mercy either because then we've committed idolatry. Um, so it becomes it becomes a tight tightrope um, act in some ways. And, and it, it seems to me it's pride. Yes, it is pride. That's exactly right. God must conform to my standard. If I am going to judge, how can God be X when Y happens? That's right. Um, is me saying God wants to be me? That's right. And I think, um, I think if you really read the Old Testament, there are two really key examples to look at in terms of this. Um, you have the book of Job, where Job is mistreated right by Satan. I mean, we know he doesn't deserve what it is he gets. But Job is operating in this really um, anthropomorphic worldview where if you do good things then good things will happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. So there's become a problem in the cosmic ledger system in Job's mind because he's done good things and bad things are happening to him. And of course, his friends take the opposite position. Well, no, Job, bad things are happening to you, so you must have done something bad, right? And the point is both of them are missing the point. Neither of them are right. And when God comes to Job at the end of the book, he doesn't give him a systematic treatise of, here's why I did what I did, and here's how I was present in your suffering, what does God do to Job at the end of Job? He asks him a lot of questions. He's, first, he says, gird up your loins like a man, which I love that verse. But, but then he asks questions. Where were you when I was forming the earth? Where are you when it rains? Where are you when these massive creatures that I created are, are playing in, you know, in the sea or in the, on land or whatever? You know, where were you during all this? Um, pointing at the difference between creature and creator, right? You're a finite person. God is basically putting Job in his place, saying there is a mystery here and I will operate how I operate. Now, that should give a, we should have faith in that because we know God's nature is good, that he's loving, that he's merciful and all those things, um, but it, it can be hard to see. Another example, kind of the co- counter example I always point to, is the prophet Habakkuk who is not talked about enough. Um, Habakkuk is prophesying at a time when Israel's in decline, when their enemies are, are winning the day. And he's, he's looking at this and he's saying, God, if we're your chosen people, how can this happen? But unlike Job, who at times really sounds very accusatory towards God, Habakkuk ends his questioning with a, with a beautiful statement that he's gonna wait for an answer from God like a watchman waits on the wall. Leaving room for God to be God and him to be a creature, right? And understanding that, that, yes, these questions are good to ask. I mean, read the Psalms. The psalmist is always wrestling with something and, and can even, you know, be very accusatory towards God. But that there is that room between us. And so the question is asked and Habakkuk says, I'll wait for the answer, right? Um, and so I think that's a much healthier posture, you know, when, when something bad is happening. God, why is this happening? But I'll stand and wait. Like a watchman. I think that's faith. That's faith. So we know that God is love. We know that He's justice. We know that He is all the other virtues, right? Um, And we know that there is a problem. The problem we isolated in our first session these cycles of sin, this toxic environment that we're all born into, um, that virus that we all have that disposes us away from God. And so in the fourth century, there was a great little book. I mean, you could probably read it in a a day or two called On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. Um, that, That book is actually why I'm Anglican. Um, because I had a friend of mine who said, you really need to read more Church Fathers. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I'll I'll do that. Um, This is when I was at Liberty. And so I went to a used bookstore and there was On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius with a foreword by C.S. Lewis. And I knew who C.S. Lewis was, but I didn't know who Athanasius was. And I said, oh, I'll buy that book. Um, It was only like three bucks anyways. I read the foreword by C.S. Lewis, which was great. And then I read the book and as I was reading it, I go, man, this is so different than what I'm being taught at Liberty. Um, I love this. I want more of this. And so then we became Anglican. Um, but Athanasius was writing in the fourth century, and he, he wants to answer the question, why did God become incarnate? And he uses a thought experiment. We actually read this book in our, in our Friday Bible study at the end of last year, after we finished uh, St. Matthew's Gospel. Um, but he uses this thing called the divine dilemma um, as a thought experiment to help us better contextualize the drama of redemption. So he begins by by explaining that sin causes a kind of crisis, because it meant that God's creation was slipping into a sort of nothingness, an emptiness. Uh, it was becoming isolated from its creator. Right? We're on this trajectory away from God, kind of altogether corporately. Um, and so, God, what what is God to do in that situation? Is kind of what Athanasius is wanting to know. Um, could he just ignore that humanity had sinned and say, "Oh"? everything's back to normal. Forgiveness by fiat, we might call that. Um, Athanasius says, no, God can't do that because he's perfectly just. So he can't sacrifice his justice for his mercy. So then does that mean that God could just stand off to the side and watch creation slip into this kind of state of nothingness and misery? Well, no, the prayer book says he hateth nothing that he's made. If God is love And if he ignored the situation that humanity placed itself in, he wouldn't be perfect love. So what is God to do? Now, of course, this is a thought experiment. God's not really up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to solve the problem. But it helps us as creatures kind of understand what's going on with the creator um, by framing it this way. So the answer as to how God solves the dilemma is the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two gaps that separate us from God. There is what we might call a metaphysical gap, and there is what we might call a moral gap. Uh, The metaphysical gap refers to the inherent distance between creator, creator and creature, right? The inequality between these two things makes love and relationship very difficult, if not impossible, um, it's a similar inequality that might exist between humans and animals, or, um, or the author and a fictional character, for example. Um, there is a sense in which we might love an animal, um, and and like when we had our first dog before we had kids, we certainly thought, oh, this is like having a kid, right? And then we had kids, and we realized <laughs> that's not the same. Um, or, or, you know, someone who, who's spent time creating a fictional character might, in a sense, love that character, but the character's not real, right? I mean, they're not, they don't exist actually. Um, they're a sort of a derivative creation and therefore of a lower order uh, than the author. So there's not really a quality. I mean, you can't talk to your fictional character. You're really talking to yourself, right, when you do that. Um, you can't talk to your dog. Uh, they might be able to understand uh, They might be able to understand certain commands and, and learn through experience that when you say, you know, sit, they, they, what you want them to do so that they can get a treat. But they're not able to communicate with you, you know. I think uh, philosopher Wittgenstein said that, um, that if a lion could speak, we couldn't understand it anyways, you know. Um, so there's certainly that, that issue between creator and creature where there's, uh, there's a big uh, gap of inequality. Um, and, and really, equality is required for love to exist. Um, there has to be some sense of equality, um, it doesn't always have to be uh, an exact equality. Uh, there can be a kind of proportional equality, like, like Jude and Rowan are, are young, right, and they're not, they're not uh, adults, um, but we love them because we understand that they're, they're persons, you know, and there's a kind of proportionality to that. So there's this metaphysical gap that needs to be overcome between us and God, and then there's a moral gap, which is what we call sin, um, it's our failure as creatures to do what God has commanded us to, to, to do. So as creatures, we're unworthy to go before our creator, right? That's kind of the point God makes to Job. You know, you're just a creature, so you can't ask you, you know, these questions. You can't demand things from me because I'm the creator. Um, and then as sinners, we're particularly unable and unworthy to approach God because we've placed this even further impediment between us. The, the, the gap between creator and creature is already so wide and then sin means we really have compounded that gap. Um, it would be like a person who owes a debt to someone, uh, acting like everything is totally normal with their debtor, like the debt doesn't exist. Well, if you owe someone a lot of money, it will inevitably get between you in some way, you know? Um, so our immorality places us in an open rebellion against God, which means that that debt is always present. Um, And this causes a real problem because our corruption has now turned us against God. It turns us against one another. So it makes us unable to render God what he's due, which as our creator is everything, right? So we already owe God everything, and then we sinned. So how could we possibly make restitution for that? So God solves the dilemma by becoming incarnate. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, takes on a human nature, a body and a soul, that are united to his divine person. The incarnation solves the metaphysical gap between us and God, that distance between creator and creature, because the son unites human nature to himself. So without the incarnation, humanity and divinity are so separate that there's not really the possibility of relationship. But when God unites it to himself, the relationship with him becomes possible. Uh, Herbert McCabe, who I cited earlier, says that when we pray... Because our prayers are through the Son, right? They're because we're joined to the Son, we're in Christ. When we pray, we approach God not as creatures approaching creator, but as sons approaching the Father. So there is a kind of equality there because of what the Son has done. He became man that man might become like God, as Athanasius said. But also the incarnation redeems us from being dead in our sins. This is primarily the work of the cross, the atonement. And the question is, what did Christ accomplish on Calvary? Well, we know that he freed us from Satan, right? Hebrews 2.14 says, "...for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil." So there's this kind of cosmic warfare going on between God and Satan, uh, though it's not an asymmetrical warfare because God and Satan are not equals, right? Um, but there is a warfare going on and, and, and Satan does have a kind of control over humanity. Um, he enslaves us and by the cross, Christ sets us free from that. Colossians 2 talks about our Lord dragging the, uh, the, the uh, powers and principalities through the city streets like you would, you know, to a king that you had defeated uh, as a way of embarrassing them and um, mocking them and torturing them. But also, uh, we can say that the son pays the debt that we could not pay, right? We owed God honor, all of, all of our, the honor we could give him, but in our sinning, we dishonored him. And so we're left with no recourse except that God assumes humanity, and pays that debt on our behalf. And that arrangement only works if Jesus is fully God and fully man, which is why the church is such a stickler about how we talk about the incarnation, because if we get it off just even by a little bit, it can, can really ruin our understanding of redemption. If God is, is 98% God and 2% human, well, then it doesn't really work. He has to be fully both, right? And then finally, we can say that the cross shows us what it means to be human, right? The cross is the model. It's the template for our own lives. We are to become like our Lord who went all the way to the cross to show his love for us by forgiving our sins. And so the same should be true when we encounter those who have wronged us and extending forgiveness to them. So Christ has paid the redemption for our sins. His merits, we talk a lot about that in the prayer book, through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy only son. His merits include his whole perfect life and his offering of himself to the father. The thing is, when you you do something good, you tend to deserve a reward, right? You know, if if you find someone's dog on the street and you return them, usually they'll give you some sort of reward, right? What reward could the father possibly give the son? The son is divine. He has everything he needs, right? He doesn't need anything outside of himself. So the son, rather than receiving the rewards for his own actions, gives those rewards to those who are in him, who are in him. His merits become our merits. He gives them to us. But the question is how? How do we experience forgiveness? How do we receive those merits that he's won for us? And the answer is in sacramental appropriation. The redemption won by Christ is at least normally applied to us in the sacraments offered by the church. Now, not all sacraments are designed to convey the benefit of forgiveness of sins, right? Confirmation, holy orders, and marriage don't normally communicate forgiveness of sins. They're good, and they're sacraments because they help us become more like God, right? Or at least they should, Um, but they are not about, primarily about forgiveness of sins. But the sacraments that we do emphasize for God's forgiveness being extended to us are baptism and the Eucharist and confession. So in baptism, all of our sin is remitted, original sin and actual sin. So in baptism, we're cleansed from that deficiency in our nature that inclines us towards sin, that thing that we're all born with, right? We're given a new life, in which we can pursue holiness and pursue God. And we're also freed from the guilt of our actual sin, those sins that we have committed. So up to that point in your life, uh, (laughs) baptism has purified you of all of the wrong things that you've done. But there is a positive element to baptism. It doesn't just take things away. It makes us a child of God because it puts us in Christ, right? It puts us in the Son. So we now have a relationship with the Father, And that makes us part of God's family, the church. So baptism is what makes us Christians, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So it's important that we get baptized. There's also um, the sacrament of the Eucharist, um, which we should not, you know, if you read 1 Corinthians, St. Paul warns us against taking communion in the wrong manner. So if we're in a state of really serious sin, it's a good idea to refrain from the Eucharist rather than take it. However, there is a sense in which the Eucharist cleanses us of what we might call venial sins, um, which mean minor sins. Um, First John 5.20 mentions that there is a sin which leads to death. And by extension, that means there are sins that don't lead to death. Um, This doesn't mean that we should do them, Um, It's still bad for us to do them, but there are some sins that are less serious than other sins. Um, And that's kind of intuitive, right? I mean, you know, it might be one thing if your kid reluctantly obeys you, right? That's not good, but it's really bad if they openly rebel against you, right? One of those is worse than the other. Um, Now, you obviously, you want a cheerful heart, right? But you might punish in different gradations, right? The open rebellion might get a really serious punishment, Whereas the reluctant rebellion might get a more minor punishment. Um, not making your bed, right, is not the same as, you know, um, I don't know, stealing money from your parents, right? Um, so, so there is a distinction uh, between what we might call mortal and venial sin. And a helpful way to differentiate them is to say that a sin which leads to death is a serious sin done with full knowledge and full consent, right? So not, uh, uh, there are times or situations in which You may not know the right thing to do. And you might say, well, I'm going to do this and hopefully it's the right thing. You know, you're not maybe as culpable. Uh, Further, it requires full consent. You know, you have to know what you're doing is wrong and choose it anyways. Um, So like if you're drunk, you know, you can't really fully consent to something. I mean, you shouldn't have gotten drunk, but, but what you do in an altered state of mind is not the same as what you would do when you're not in an altered state of mind. So it's probably rare that people commit really, really serious mortal sin that leads to death, but it does happen. And when we've committed one of those things, then our soul may be in real trouble and it would be better to avoid taking communion until we've dealt with it. But communion does for us uh, bring in the present the body and blood of Christ, right? So the sacrifice of Christ happened on Calvary. And the prayer book and First John talks about that it's the one sacrifice for the propitiation of sins, which means that it, which juxtaposes it against the sacrifices in the Old Testament, right? Because the author of Hebrews talks about this. The problem with the Old Testament sacrifices is the priest has to do it again and again and again and again, and you wonder, well, if he's got to do it once a year, why not twice a year? Why not four times a year? You know, how much is enough? Well, the cross is enough. The cross is enough. And when we, but what we know is that the cross is also sort of an eternal moment in that in heaven, Christ is interceding for us. Now, when we think of intercession, we often think of just praying for someone. Oh, I'm interceding for you, you know, in my, in my prayer closet. And it's kind of a, a sort of vague thing, you know, I'm, I'm praying for you. And, and it's nice. It's good. We should intercede for others. That's not exactly what we mean when we say Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of God. What we mean is that Christ is presenting his crucified and resurrected body to the Father for us. It's that that insistence that the merits that he's won should be applied to us, right? He's, He's eternally showing the Father his wounds for us. That's his intercession. And so when we celebrate the Mass, that sacrifice is not represented, it's not done again. Christ is not re-sacrificed. Some medieval lay people may have developed that superstition, which was unhealthy. But rather, that sacrifice is brought to us in the moment, and we receive it, we live into it. Right? So, so there is a sense in which his sacrifice becomes present for us. So we have baptism and we have Eucharist, but we also have the sacrament of confession. And the early Christians had a problem because, like I said, with baptism, it, it, it remits your sins up to the point of baptism. The problem is you can only be baptized one time, right? It's not a sacrament we reapply. Um, and so what you had was people wondering, well, what if I sin after I'm baptized, So what I'll do is just not get baptized until the very last moment, (laughs) which is not a great way to do things because, you know, people may die unexpectedly or, I mean, even then, it's just not a good thing to do, right? Um, We should obey immediately. Um, And so, uh, so for many Christians, it was perplexing. How are we forgiven of our sins after we're baptized? So I think this also ignores our Lord's words to his disciples in John 20, 23, shortly before his ascension. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. He's speaking to the apostles, right? And the apostles, of course, lay hands on other men who become their successors, who take their office and the powers of that office. And they lay hands on other men and other men and other men until you get to Bishop Chad, right? Um, And so, um, so, Our Lord has made his church, particularly the ministers of his church, agents of reconciliation. Which means that the beauty of this is that it provides for us assurance. So you can go to confession with any sin and the priest speaking for on behalf of Christ in his office as minister can pronounce to you forgiveness of your sins. I absolve you of all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And there is no hand-wringing after this. You don't have to wonder, oh, was I really sorry? Did God really forgive my sins? As long as you were honest in the confessional, yes. The answer is yes. Your sins are forgiven. So there's a really, it's really a beautiful ministry of the church. Um, that, that, that God has made us cooperators. We are, um, Paul talks about being ambassadors of Christ. Uh, this is part of the church's ministry uh, because it's given to ministers um, to convey that forgiveness. So we become participants in God's redemption, in his application of forgiveness to the world, which is a really beautiful thing. So what we've seen in this session, I think, is that John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Divine forgiveness is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And that's the beauty of the cross. God doesn't have to pick one over the other. The cross is the perfect expression of both justice and mercy. And then that means that God makes forgiveness freely available through the ministries of his church. Through baptism, through Holy Communion, and through the sacrament of confession. So, uh, any uh, any questions as we kind of come to an end of our second session about divine forgiveness? Nothing. No news is good news, I guess. Yeah. Well, then let's maybe take another break, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so, um, so maybe we can come back up about 5 till uh, 11, and uh, we'll talk about what it means for us to forgive others in light of the forgiveness that we have received.